Our scripture reading today is from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I asked Angela to read that passage because it talks about divine wisdom. And in our text today, we are going to see Jesus being the wisest person who has ever lived and his wisdom is on display. But before we go there, I want to ask you a question. And this is not a trick question. You don't have to give a Sunday school answer. I want to know what amazes you. What amazes you? Something that you cannot help but talk about to other people. Something that you deeply love that is incredible. And there's a wide range of good possible answers. In all honesty, I think if you look at any individual thing long enough, you can begin to be amazed by it. So if you're amazed by by engineering, maybe you think suspension bridges are incredible. Internal combustion engines, the, the precision of engineering that makes an explosion possible without blowing the machine apart. Amen. That's not the result we want. So the amazement of an internal combustion engine or, or maybe a steam engine. How you can have something so silent move something so powerful. Maybe, maybe it's fall colors. How every single year the trees burst forth with just this array of rich, gorgeous colors. And you can't help but be amazed by what God does in nature every single season. So let me ask you again. I've given you a couple examples. What amazes you. What amazes you? The night sky, the, the, the stars and all their vast array. Lake Michigan. What about Lake Michigan? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I do love driving around it on the way to Chicago. I, I, and I loved biking along the shore. If you've ever been to Chicago and appreciated the Lakeside Trail, it gives you like 12 miles of great, beautiful biking where you can try not to run into runners and joggers. Let me give you two things. I was talking to, to Debbie Morse this week, and, and I want to tell you what Debbie said in just a minute. But before I get to what Debbie said, I've talked a little bit about bees before. I, I don't keep bees. I think maybe someday as an old man I might. I'd kind of like to do that. 
I've mentioned in the past just my consistent amazement that we live in a world where God made bee spit taste exquisitely delicious. Who would think? I mean, if you imagine, imagine like a giant bee sitting next to you and you're like, hey, want to taste something great? And he's like, open up, you know, he's going to spit in your mouth. Like, you would not think that that's a good idea. But it does taste exquisitely delicious. That's not what I mean. I want to tell you about something else. Have, have you guys ever heard of waggle dancing? Waggle dancing? Some of you are nodding your heads like you know what this is. I, I joked, especially in first service, I'm asking a bunch of Baptists if they know about dancing. This is something that bees do to communicate with other bees. So this little worker bee goes out, flies around, and finds some flower that's just got magnificent nectar. And then it flies back to the hive, and it will do a dance to tell other bees where to go to find the same nectar. And it's called a waggle dance. because So it, it will dance in like a figure eight. Okay, so there's like two half circles, and in the middle is the waggle part where it will waggle back and forth. And what it does is depending on how long it waggles and what direction it's waggling in with reference to the sun, it will tell other bees the exact distance and the exact course to find the flower that it went to for that nectar. Now, it gets, it gets crazier because as, as like you would think, how does this tiny little bee know how to do that? Not only does it do that, say it finds that flower at 3 o'clock, and then at 5 o'clock, it's still really excited about telling bees where that flower is. Well, the sun has moved, so its reference point is not in the same place. The same bee within the hive will adjust its waggle, so that other bees still accurately find the same flower. And they do this by pure instinct. No one teaches a bee to do this. There's no such thing as a bee school. They're not sitting around in little groups waggling, and the teacher says, no, no, not like that. They do it with a kind of innate knowledge that's part of their DNA, just part of their being bees. They know how to communicate with great specificity. And they'll change their directions based on where the sun is so that they can continue to provide accurate directions. Not only do they do that, they also argue. Because if one little bee comes into the hive and it's super excited about this flower, and then another bee comes in and feels like it has a better flower, they will compete in their waggle dances trying to persuade as many worker bees as possible to go in different directions. They'll even fight about it. Who knew that bees could be this competitive? This is something that amazes me. It's incredible. And all kinds of stuff like this exists. Some of you knew about this, some of you didn't. You're like, wow, the world is more incredible now than it was like five minutes ago. That's what I mean. What amazes you? Because my desire for this time in this place is I would like us to be amazed by Jesus and his wisdom. Because the world was made and founded upon the wisdom of God. 
And sometimes we look at Jesus and, and we have a hard time relating to him. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding why he says what he says, why he does what he does. But the best response to Jesus Christ is to be in awe of him, to be amazed by him. Because if your heart is in awe and you are in a place of amazement, you will humbly listen to anything he says. He's the only person you should have that kind of trust with. But what I want to urge you towards is a kind of wonder and amazement and awe. Like when you find out something incredible, and, and I admit, my, my B example is super weird. It just happens to be one of those crazy things that I think is so awesome. I want to share you. Let me give you one more. So I was talking to Debbie this week. I said, Debbie, what amazes you? And she looked at me, because you can never trust a pastor when he asks you a question like that. It's like, is this a loaded question? Is there like a right answer? Are you, are you testing me? And I said, no, this is, no, it's just an honest question. Give me something that amazes you. And she thought for a minute, and she said, you know, you know what does it? She said, little babies. Little babies. They're tiny, tiny little fingernails that are so small. You don't even have to use nail clippers. You just kind of pull a little bit and help them trim their nails so they don't scratch their little faces. She said when Riley was born, this is especially when it hit her, because for the first time, she, she looked at those tiny little fingers and thought, every single one of those fingers has a unique fingerprint. There's no other person in the world like this little baby. And God does that again and again and again. Everyone is unique. Everyone is astoundingly beautiful. And do you know what happens when a little baby is born? We can't stop talking about it. Facebook blows up. Grandmothers take pictures and they share hundreds of thousands of pictures of these tiny little babies because they're in amazement. They're in awe. They can't help sharing the beautiful, incredible thing that they've seen. And that's the reaction that I am praying we will have to Jesus Christ today. See, there are three steps. Maybe you could break it down in different ways, but there are three steps to worshiping something. The first is just that you see it as being incredible and amazing. Just appreciating, just pausing for a moment, admitting that it's complex, that it's beautiful, that it's awesome. The second step is enjoying it. You know, you, you can admit that some things are amazing. Some of you, a steam engine is like, big deal, I don't care. And, and I mentioned it in first service. Some guys, you know, they'd love to go around and collect what some people would maybe lovingly call junk. Uh, you know, guys will get excited about a, about a water pump. Like, oh, shoot, I could use that to drain my pond here. Or something like, you know, other people look at the water pump and be like, man, that's worthless. Who would even pay money for that? So, so there's the possibility to admit that something is complex and not care about it. I, I'm asking you to not just admit that something is amazing, but to also begin to care about it, to begin to have a heart reaction to it. And then the last step is like what I just said about faith. You, you can't hold it in anymore. You have to tell someone else. When I found out about waggle dancing, I went home and said, can you believe that bees do this? It's just unbelievable. You have to tell other people. 
When you see your little grandbaby, you, you just can't help it. You have to tell other people. I also joked with her a little bit. I said, grandparents appreciate this especially because on average, they get more sleep than the parents of the newborn baby. My prayer is that as we look at Christ, we would have those three reactions. We would be amazed by his wisdom. Our hearts would be drawn to him. And that we would be so full of wonder and awe that our love for Christ would be obvious to the people around us. See, nobody was wise like Jesus. Jesus could not only answer your questions, he could answer the question you should have asked but didn't. He could see and know where your heart was at if you were asking an honest question or if you were deceitfully trying to discredit him. Jesus' wisdom is obvious in our passage in Luke today because people were trying to trap him and destroy him. He had been teaching and healing and preaching and the leadership of Israel became more and more angry and they wanted to discredit him and and he told a parable that they understood was teaching against them and their reaction, rather than repenting and asking forgiveness of God, their reaction was to try to silence Jesus. And so they begin to send people who are asking clever questions in hopes that either he will be destroyed or the people will stop listening. And people still today deal with Jesus, and they still wonder, is he an authority? Should, should we listen to him? Or can we just dismiss him as kind of like a good figure in history, but, but someone who has no authority over our lives? The things that happen in this passage are things that happen in your heart and in my heart as we hear about Christ. And it's my prayer that our hearts would respond to his wisdom with wonder and amazement and awe and worship. So let's first Look at what happens when people come to Christ with false questions. And I'm going to read a longer portion of scripture, and then we're going to take it apart in smaller pieces. Look with me at Luke chapter 20, and I'm going to begin in verse 19. So the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, on Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. No, they said that while they were trying to trap him to kill him. There was a deep level of hypocrisy in what they were doing. Then they asked the question, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. 
And there came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The thing about false questions is people who ask them, do not genuinely want an answer to their questions. People ask questions like this today, and some of them are ridiculous. You ever heard someone ask the question, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Because if you say, yes, he could make the rock, then you're admitting that there's something that he can't do, he can't lift it. And if you say, no, he couldn't make the rock, then you're saying there's something that he can't do. And either way, you're disproving the existence of an all-powerful God. And so people say, ha, I gotcha. Obviously, there's no God. Well, the issue is it's a stupid question. No one who asks that question genuinely wants an answer. You want to understand the power of God? There are lots of places in Scripture where God magnifies His power and you can understand He is the Almighty. You will tremble before Him. No one asks that question in sincerity. There are other questions that are harder to answer. Like you can think about serious Serious questions of why does God allow child abuse to happen? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Why do children get cancer? I have a friend I met at Starbucks years ago, and I was reading, I was really into philosophy at the time, and I was reading about something called process philosophy that, that questions some basic assumptions that philosophers had held for thousands of years. And he's kind of an obscure branch of philosophy from, from the late 19th, early 20th century. And I was intending to just sit down silently and read this long essay. It was like 20 pages long. And I was sitting in a Starbucks and this guy sat down in the chair next to me and said, hey, what are you reading? 
And I thought, well, this is going to be the shortest conversation in my life because I'm going to tell him I'm reading about process philosophy. And then he's going to go, oh, that's weird. And he'll go back to doing whatever it was he was doing before he interrupted me. So you can tell the mindset that I had going into this conversation. And I said, oh, I'm reading about process philosophy. And he said, oh, Alfred Whitehead? And I said, what? Like, you, you know the guy? Like, who are you? How do you know this guy? And we became friends. We used to sit all the time and talk about philosophy and talk about theology. And he told me, he said, you know, I don't like the term atheist because it makes you sound like you're the Grinch, like you're this mean person. He said, but I I don't believe in God. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, I I just, I always wondered, like, you know, how can an all-powerful good God allow evil to exist? And so I, I did what I could to help him with the question. I pointed him to a couple passages in the Bible. And I said, that is not a problem for me. Like, I feel the pain. I, I hate the suffering. But at the same time, I, I trust my father. I believe in God. Like, that, that so-called, so-called contradiction doesn't keep me from having faith. And we talked for quite a while, and I gave him an answer that I thought was amazing. It was biblically true. And after that super long conversation, and in fact, after months of talking, he shrugged his shoulders and said, meh, I still don't believe. And he had no interest in hearing biblical truth. He was using the question as a sort of shield so that he did not have to believe. See, the problem with questions like this is that ultimately, people use them to try to push God out of their lives. There is a huge difference between humbly asking God hard questions and using hard questions to silence the voice of God in your heart. In fact, I would say it's the difference between heaven and hell. Because if you come to God humbly longing to know, God, why do you allow this kind of suffering? Why do you allow my pain? God will give you an answer. He promises that if you seek him, you will find him. God can handle your hard questions. But if you come to God using questions to silence his voice, you will be forever cut off from the only source of life in the universe. And that's what's happening here. They are not asking him questions because they want to know what to do with their money or because they're worried about who is going to marry so-and-so in the next life. They are asking him questions because they want to discredit him and they want to see him destroyed. So look at what he does. The first question is about taxes. Should we, should we give tribute to Caesar or not? In some sense, it's not a bad question. We still wonder about this today. I think everybody, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, somewhere in the middle, everybody agrees that, that governments do some things that are evil. We can't agree on what evil is, but we all agree that governments do some things that are evil. And so our tax dollars pay for things that we don't agree with. And is it right for us to pay for evil things? Well, the short answer is yes. 
The New Testament teaches that that Christians under Roman rule were to pay taxes to Caesar who was actively persecuting them, feeding them to lions. I mean, do you want your tax dollars to finance the Colosseum? Like Christians still get really mad when tax dollars finance casinos and things like that. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. But the issue is God told you to pay taxes to your government. He will hold your government accountable for how they spend that money. Your responsibility is to be obedient. But they don't want an honest answer. So Jesus does something truly incredible. He doesn't give them a simple yes or no. What he does is he shows them their place in God's plan. And then he says, you have a responsibility to obey the law. Look at his answer. He says, show me a denarius, the coin that they would have used to pay taxes. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Governments issue currency because they're in charge. They get to make the money. That was true then as well as it is today. And his answer is showing them, you are under Roman rule. And if you read the Old Testament, you know God raises empires and he brings them low. And if you are under Roman rule, your obligation is to submit to that authority. But then he says, not only are you to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you're to render to God the things that are God's. It's not a one or the other, it's both. And they were hoping that either the people would be mad at him because he said that they had to pay taxes, or that he would say, no, you don't have to pay taxes, and then the Romans would be mad at him so they could hand him over to the governor, and the governor would silence him. That was their hope. He didn't do either of those things. And their response is they marvel at his answer. They are amazed at how he was able to take a question that they thought was unanswerable and give an answer that they could not refute. And so they became silent. This is one of the things that I love about Jesus. He knows how to answer anyone who comes to him. He knows when to be silent. He knows when to give a straight answer to a broken person. And he knows when to give an answer that displays his wisdom so much that even his critics are silent. So he answers this question on taxes that's supposed to be unanswerable. Then the Sadducees come and they ask him about marriage. And this is another one of those truly bizarre questions. This is very much, in my opinion, like the rock question. It's a, it's a dumb question. They feel like because this woman had seven different husbands, the resurrection must be impossible because she'd have to be married to seven men. And we all know that the Bible doesn't allow that, and, and so they, they feel like, you can almost see them kind of like elbowing each other, like, we got him, we got him, there's no way you can answer this one. And they're so proud of themselves, they can't imagine that he's going to give them an answer to their question. So you see what's happening, they've come to him with no interest in the truth. If that's where your heart is, you will miss who Jesus is. But he takes their stupid question and gives them an incredible answer. He says three things, three reasons that they are wrong and completely wrong. The first is that this age, the time we live in where people are dying and people are being married, this age is not at all like the next age, like the resurrection age. 
They've assumed that the next life will be just like this life. So if the woman has seven living husbands, they go, oh no, where's she going to go? Jesus says, the next life is not like this life. You're, you're wrong. Your assumption is bad. They also assume that all seven of these men will be raised to eternal life. And I want you to see this in the page of Scripture. Jesus says, that's a bad assumption. You're counting way too high. Notice what he says, verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, not everyone is worthy. Not everyone makes it to heaven. You're assuming all seven guys are going to make it? That's a bad assumption. The reality is, we will stand in judgment before God. And depending on where your faith is, you may or may not be in the resurrection to life. So they've assumed the next stage is like this one, they're wrong. They've assumed that all are worthy of the resurrection, they're wrong. And then he describes the key difference between this life and the next life. He says, verse 36, they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, what does he mean by that? Why is he talking about that in such strange words? You know, I had a manager once when I was in high school. I worked for the Hungry Howies that's right down here on Saginaw Street. And my manager asked me and my brother, we were Christians and she knew we were Christians, said, hey, is there sex in heaven? And, and we kind of looked at each other and, and we knew, like, this passage kind of seems to say, well, there's no marriage, there's no sex outside of marriage, there's probably not any sex in heaven. So we looked and said, probably not, sorry. And then she said, well, I don't want to go. And that was it. That was kind of her, like, if that's what heaven is like, I'm out. I don't care about Jesus, I don't care about God. That also is kind of a stupid question. That assumes that the next life is like this life, and what God is saying is the next life is not like this life. You can't imagine how good the next life is going to be, but he gives you a taste. He says, in the next life, God is a father of everyone who attains to the resurrection of the dead. The picture is of Old Testament blessing and joy. Think of the beginning of the book of Job. If you know that story, Job is a rich man. He provides for his whole family. His children take turns throwing parties over and over again. And so there's feasting and there's joy and there's worship and they love living in the presence of God with all of his blessings. But they have a father that provides for them. What Jesus is saying is God is that figure. Part of why you got married during this time period, was because you knew you were going to get old and die and you needed to have kids to take care of you in your old age. There was no social security. So if you wanted to have someone to provide you with food so that you didn't starve, you got married and you had kids. But if you have a father who provides for you, you you don't need that. There's a radical shift in what life is like when we live in the presence of God. And Jesus is saying, the next life is different from this life. You are deeply wrong because marriage is not necessary in a place where all are sons of God. But then notice what he does. He goes on the offensive and he says, very clearly, you're completely wrong about the resurrection and you should have known that you were wrong. And notice what he does. He points them to Moses. He points them to the Old Testament. And he says in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. What's he doing? 
He's saying your questions that you think are unanswerable, that you're trying to use to discredit me, your questions would have been answered if you'd carefully read the scriptures. And I believe that he would say the same to you and I today. Notice his passion for careful reading. Notice that Jesus expected that they could have real truth from a careful reading of the Old Testament. And I want to say very clearly to each of you today, you can know real truth if you will devote yourself to carefully reading the Word of God. Some people come at this book and say, I just, I, I can't understand it. I don't know what it means. And if that's your your mindset going in, you're right. You won't get anything out of it. But if you approach the word of God humbly, seeking God, longing to be taught through his word, you will learn. And notice the result. As Jesus answers this question, just like before, they are silenced. Verse 39, some of the scribes answered, teacher, You have spoken well. His critics changed to admirers. In verse 40, they no longer dared to ask him any question. And he goes on the offensive. So we've seen the wrong questions. We've seen false questions. Look at what Jesus says is the right question that gets to the heart issue. Look at 41 through 44 with me. It says, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And if you notice, they don't say anything. They don't even try to answer this question. But what is Jesus doing? He is showing them who he truly is, and he's lovingly giving them a precious warning. You see, if you dismiss the Son of God, you are an enemy of the Son of God, and God is going to make you his footstool. They've come into this conversation with the assumption that Jesus is just another teacher, maybe a prophet. None of them believe that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And they're not even expecting God to send a Messiah like that. And Jesus shows them this question. Again, notice his careful attention to just a sentence in the word of God. And he expects that from this kind of sentence, they will know what the Messiah is like if they've carefully read. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, in Old Testament times, universally, not just in Israel, a man's son is never greater than the father. This is not how it works. The father, is, he's sort of like the king. And so for a son to be greater than the father is unthinkable. But what Jesus is saying, David, the greatest king in the entire Old Testament, David calls one of his sons Lord, a term of respect. In fact, more than a term of respect, it's a term for divinity throughout the Old Testament. And if David is calling his son Lord, there's something different about this son. Not only is there something different about this son, this son will be established by Almighty God. And these people are playing with fire, coming to him with stupid questions that they just want to destroy him with. And Jesus is warning them, no, if that's your heart attitude, look out. Because my father is going to make you my footstool. They refuse to wrestle with the scriptures in a way that instructs their hearts. 
And if that's you or if that's someone you know, the question then becomes, what do you do about it? How do you fix a heart that dismisses truth? Well, Jesus gives us two pictures right after this. There's no answer, but what he does is he shows you the type of people that dismiss the word of God, and he shows you the type of person who is open to the word of God. So if you want to have your questions answered, you need to be like the second person here. So look at a false heart first and see what Jesus is arguing against, look at verse 45 with me. It says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greeting in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, what's the problem here? Their religion is defined by making themselves look good. You cannot worship God and think highly of yourself at the same time. You cannot be in awe of anything while you are full of yourself because you can't listen. And so the reason they long to trap the Messiah who is sent to save them was they were stuck on themselves. This is a picture of a person who will not listen. But then Jesus shows you what kind of person will. Seen false hearts? Look at the right heart in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. It said, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live in. Why would she do that? Why would she give so sacrificially and so generously? Because she had a heart to worship the God. She might not have been the kind of person who could answer really sophisticated philosophical questions. She might not have been the kind of person who could answer the scribes of the Pharisees, but she was the kind of person who worshiped God from a humble heart. And she's the kind of person that you and I need to be if we are going to worship God and hear from him. At the time, the temple was where you would go if you wanted to deal with your sin. It was where sacrifices were made. At the time, the temple was where you would go if you longed to hear the word of God read and if you longed to pray with other people who were looking for the Messiah. And if you gave to the work of the temple, you gave to its maintenance, you gave to repairing it, you gave to provide for the priests and the Levites who worked and served there. And so she longs to be part of what God is doing. And so she gives sacrificially. She doesn't care who sees her. She doesn't care what she has left to live on. She gives it all because she has a heart that longs to see what God will do. She believes that God is doing something. And she gives so that she can see more of it. That's the kind of heart that comes to God longing for truth. That's the kind of heart that you need to have. That's the kind of heart that I need to have. 
Today, we believe that our sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't go to a temple to offer sacrifices because the perfect sacrifice has already been made. But to worship Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice, we gather together in this place to hear the word of God read, to hear it preached, to sing songs that praise him. We give to further the work of this ministry, to spread the good news of Jesus. And so our hearts ought to be like the hearts of this woman who humbly seek God and what he's doing. So how do you have a heart like that? Well, first, before I talk about your heart, I want to talk about people like my atheist friend. How do you help someone who's stuck on dumb questions? They love raising issues like that. First, the best thing you can do is to be amazed by Jesus yourself. So you know what? I'm not wise, but Jesus is enormously wise. Would you like to pray and ask him to help you with that? Because I believe he'll help you if you ask, if you ask him. Your own love for Jesus and your own devotion to him is far more persuasive than a clever answer. I can give clever answers. They don't usually work. Second, recognize that answering the question isn't always the point. I believe you should be respectful. I I believe you should give the best answer that you can, but recognize that there's a heart issue and you desperately need to pray for the person who won't listen to the word of God. Fourth, you need to carefully study the scriptures for yourself. Jesus expected that the scribes and and Pharisees and the Sadducees should have known real truth, but they were careless with the scriptures. In fact, I believe it's in Matthew's gospel. when When it tells this account, Jesus says, one of my favorite verses, he says, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. They're wrong because they don't know the Bible. Don't be like them. Know the word of God. If you worry about your own heart, and I would put myself in that crowd worrying if I have a humble, honest heart, let me encourage you to do four things. Number one, ask the Lord to help you marvel and be amazed at Jesus. Ask God to open your eyes. The Father loves to glorify Jesus. And when you say to God, God, would you help me be amazed by Jesus? I believe that he will always answer that prayer. Number two, as God answers that prayer, perhaps through reading scripture, perhaps through hearing a sermon, as God answers that prayer, stand in awe of Jesus. Maybe you'll sing. Maybe you'll pray. Whatever it is, be amazed by Jesus. Number three, you need to repent of your pride. And and I put standing in awe of Jesus first because worship should lead you to a place of realizing your own sin. So repent of your pride. Find God's mercy and forgiveness for yourself. And number four, as you repent of your sin, begin to give sacrificially to the work of the ministry. Be part of what God is doing today. And this passage that we've looked at this morning, this does not exhaust the wisdom of Christ. In fact, we will never be able to fully appreciate the wisdom of Christ, but you can begin if your heart is right and you are seeking him. If you seek him, you will find him and all of your questions will be answered in his time. And lastly, I want to say a word. If you came in here today and you're not proud, 
if you came in here today and you have a humble heart to seek him, I've already spoken to you, but maybe you've come here today and you are discouraged or depressed. This message may not have spoken directly to you, and I'd like to help apply it to you in just this one way. Recognize that Jesus is your good shepherd. He loves you. He knows the things that discourage you. He knows what makes you anxious and afraid. And the wisdom that's on display here is the wisdom that is walking with you. Call out to him and ask for help and be encouraged. And if I can encourage you in any way, please let me know. Would you pray with me now? Father in heaven, your wisdom is on display in the life of Jesus, and I pray that you would put it on display in our lives today. May we trust you as we should. Lord, if we are proud, I pray that you would reveal that to us. Lead us in a repentance so that we can see Jesus clearly. And I ask that you would bless us as a church as we follow your wisdom. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.